0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: How do you make a Kleenex dance? I don't know. Put a little boogie in it.
2: I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win Your dinner party. You just
0: got an appropriately silly and musical joke from musician and actress Carrie Brownstein. That'll help break the ice. Season four of her show Portlandia just began. Later, we'll speak with her and her Portlandia co star Fred Armisen about, among other things, how Fred can afford his jet setting lifestyle. I'm loaded. That explains it. Yeah, it does. Also
2: coming up, the musician and man with the hat, Pharrell, talks about sounds he can see, we taste ice cream you can hear, and we talk to the director of a new documentary about things you can neither see nor hear.
0: Mm, all these mysteries will be solved. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small
2: talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Russian forces are tightening their grip on Crimea. The
3: president and the Pentagon want to cut army troop levels to their lowest level since World War II. And
2: the Oscar goes to 12 Years a Slave. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Sadie Stein. She is contributing editor at the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
4: Well... Everyone knows that the rocks at Stonehenge were carried for some 200 miles to their current location. and no one, Yeah, I didn't know that. Well, they were. Yeah. <laughs> and no one has ever known why. Okay. And now there's a new theory that scientists are putting forward that these particular blue stones hmm. have acoustic properties.
0: What? Whoa.
4: Wait, wasn't Mm -hmm. it? I thought
0: that Stonehenge was a calendar. I thought we had settled this. I
4: sort of thought that too, but maybe it was a calendar which they could play like a glockenspiel.
0: Is this, so it's like early Ronco. It's also a juicer. Oh
4: yeah, it it could do anything. (laughs) So
2: how did they discover this? They're still researching
0: Stonehenge?
4: Well, they they know the source of the stones was this place in Pembrokeshire, and they discovered that the stones there have acoustic properties and have all different kinds of tones. So now they're thinking, well... Maybe that explains why they would bother to cart them so far. Yeah, when they're
2: yeah. perfectly good stones up there. There are okay sure. stones
4: there, but they, they may not have had the tonal properties required in whatever calendar slash sun worship slash sacrifice <laughs> they were doing, which we still don't
2: know. Wow. So Spinal Tap might have been onto something oh, by incorporating yeah. them
4: exactly. into their musical show. And oh, how they danced! <laughs>
2: <laughs> but wouldn't an obvious
0: thing now be to try to play Stonehenge? Can you make a tone with those stones?
4: That was sort of what I was thinking. It's like theoretically you can do... Do this, and maybe you could do it. Can't they go there yeah. and play them? Bang on
2: the rocks. Yeah, yeah. We have to get like uh, John Bonham's son <laughs> and some of the best drummers in the world assembled. That probably wouldn't be hard you to know, do. Just
4: get Brian Eno over there. It's sure. If
2: Brian Eno played Stonehenge. I think he would just disappear and shoot right up into the sky.
4: Maybe this was its purpose all along. I think we've, I think we've cracked
2: it. I think we've cracked it. Uh, Sadie Stein, thanks for the small talk. Thank you for having me. And now, time for cocktails. <laughs> This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history, then ask a bartender to capture that story in the form of a cocktail. Yes, it's our semi-famous history lesson with booze. First, the history part, right around this time, back in 1983, a legendary play opened on Broadway.
0: And not legendary in a good way. Our friend Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
5: Long before critics savaged Spider-Man the musical, there was the Moose Murders. The show was a mystery slash farce written by a guy named Arthur Bicknell. Today, theater goers remember it fondly as the biggest flop in Broadway history. The signs were there even before opening night. Originally the play was supposed to feature movie star Eve Arden, her first Broadway appearance in 40 years. After the first preview, she quit. Arden was replaced, but to judge by the reviews, the script should have been too. According to The New Yorker, the show, quote, would insult the intelligence of an audience consisting entirely of amoebas. And The New York Times imagined audience members would hold, quote, periodic reunions in the noble tradition of survivors of the Titanic. The Moose murders lasted one day. Its opening night was also its closing night. But the show has achieved showbiz immortality. It's still invoked as the standard by which all flops are judged. As for Bignell, he's made peace with the play. Last year, he actually published a book about it. As he told the New York Times, quote, if you can't redeem, exploit.
0: So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I am talking with Jason Woodruff, bar manager at Joe Allen's, a longtime hangout for the theater community in New York City. Jason, uh, first of all, I understand that Joe Allen's has a wall commemorating... Broadway flops, is that right?
6: Yes, we're the only place in or around Broadway that celebrates the failures of the Broadway stage.
0: (laughs) So it's like half the wall, just a giant Moose Murders poster?
6: Well, it does have a place of honor up near the front of the restaurant, but we've got about 50 or so other flops that are framed on the wall.
0: All right, so we've clearly come to the right place. What drink have you come up with?
6: Well, um... In honor of a show that never had a repeat performance, we thought we'd give you a drink that no one in their right mind would ever want to see again after they had one. (laughs) We've named it The Murdered Moose.
0: All right, I'm a little afraid, but what's in this thing?
6: Two ounces of black Sambuca. Right. That's
0: already a problem.
6: Yeah, for some, uh, (laughs) add to that one half ounce of Rose's Lime Juice. One half ounce of olive juice. Oh, my God. You chill that and pour it into a martini glass with a salted rim and garnish it with an onion and a cherry.
0: <laughs> I like that at one point you have to chill it.
6: Yes. Like that's going to help. Well, out. chilling will numb the taste buds just a little bit so you can get it down.
0: And, Brendan, that book Arthur Bignell wrote about his failed play, mm-hmm. it is called Moose Murdered. And it actually got decent reviews.
2: Oh, see that? Something good comes of every failure. It's true. Like, for instance, failing to drink that cocktail. Yeah. (laughs) Something good will happen if you... Only good
0: can come of that, I think. (laughs) Speaking of which, everybody, we got cocktail recipes you will actually like, we promise, at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've made some small talk, sipped some
2: cocktails, but it's not quite a party without music to play. So we've invited a guest all the way from Denmark to DJ for us, the electro-pop musician Ma. she She'll explain the name. She got the internet all aflutter last year with her dark, danceable singles. Her debut album, called No Mythologies to Follow, comes out this week. Here she is to suggest some tracks that put her in a party mood.
7: Hi, my name is Karen-Marie Erstel, and I also go by the artist's name of Mö. I know it sounds weird, but it's because in Denmark we have this weird letter called Ø. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's my name. <laughs> and now I'm going to take you through my Dinner Party soundtrack. The first track I would play is Get Free by Major Laser, one of Diplo's cool projects. It's featuring Amber from Dirty Projectors. This is when my guests are arriving, and I'm imagining that it's all my girlfriends, you know. And I'll play this song to get them into this moody, dreamy state of mind.
8: Never got love from
7: it makes me dreamy and melancholic, but still like, make me want to do something because, you know, the lyrics are kind of political. It's about society holding you down. (laughs) The production is electronic, but it also has these real instruments, like it has this amazing guitar. It's like doing this kind of a Eastern world sound. A lot of people from Scandinavia kind of like this melancholy vibe, you know? But not too much, you know, just a bit of it. And this is only the start of the dinner party. It'll get better. <laughs> It'll get brighter. Yeah, now we've like been catching up on, okay, so what's going on in your life? More heavy stuff. And so now it's time for some serious drinks. <laughs> And for that, we will be hearing the track by the musician Gold called The Keepers. We're the keepers. Whoa, house is down. I think it's so great to have this energy and this edge and just this power, you know. You want to want people to have something to shout for. <laughs> down, down. It it's the sound of right now. Kind of street, but still it's also very pop and very catchy. Down, down, when Santa Cole's playing, that's when we're dancing with our drinks. Just happy drunk, you know.
2: <laughs> down, down,
7: and the next song would be actually a song I just discovered like one week ago at this party at my friend's house. It was like, blow my head away. <laughs> Frank Ocean with Lost. And
0: I just wanna know why you ain't work.
7: This song is about exactly what a good party should be all about, like just letting go, be lost with your friends, you know, not caring about the morning light, just just being free. Now you're lost, lost in the heat of it all.
9: Girl,
3: you know you're lost.
7: In I just really love songs that have air, you don't feel like the track is just stuffed with elements and music all over the place. It's putting a loop on the cool things and just like zooming in on that, like the guitar hook like... It's so catchy and so nice, but it's still exotic in a way. It's like the song is longing for something. It's great, it's great, I love it. All right, so now it's getting late. We're just being like teenagers again, having fun. I really want to pick a very carefree song. I'll play Sonic Youth, My Friend Goo. My friend
8: has a real
10: she knows just what to do. She looks hair like she doesn't care. What she does best stand
7: Sonic Youth were my big obsession when I was a teenager. I like that kind of grungy vibe. Oh, I'm a teenage dirtbag, I don't know anything, you know.
10: (laughs) Because
7: when I was a teenager, I was in this girl punk band and my parents were just like, what? (laughs) They didn't understand it. Also because my brother, he was like, wonder child and I was dressing up in black and totally not in control, you know, like, ah! (laughs) But they were very sweet, though. They did come around and understood me in the end. (laughs) So yeah, now is the time that I have to play some of my own music. Not that I want to kick people out of my house, but I guess Pilgrim should be the go home song. Go home and think about trying to find your own ways and then wake up and do something good about your life. So sorrowful, I am. Oh, wise river, take me to the sea, breathe free. Like pilgrims on the camino, I go, I go.
0: A dinner party soundtrack from Moo. Her album, No Mythologies to Follow, comes out Tuesday, and you can catch her at the South by Southwest Festival this week.
2: Along with every other musician on earth, most of the comedians, about 85% of all software programmers and media. Also, non-essential military personnel, your barber, basically
0: everybody except Kim Jong-un will be yeah, there. He couldn't find a hotel room. All
2: right, people, after a brief pause, we'll be back with Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein of Portlandia. This is The Dinner Party Download.
0: Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the Arts and Leisure section of Public Radio. I'm Rico
2: Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, you're going to hear me eat musical ice cream. I'll let that <laughs> sink in for a second. And in a few minutes, author Carrie Lynn tells the tale of an infamous New Orleans madam. Mm. But first, let's meet our guests of honor. That is guests
0: plural, because in a Dinner Party Download first, we've invited two folks to share the head of the table this week, Carrie Brownstein and Fred Armisen. They are writers, producers, and stars of the sketch comedy show Portlandia, in which they lampoon the town of Portland, Oregon, and
2: the post-liberal art grad types who live there. The fourth season just launched on IFC, and the show's known for viral video hits online, too. Uh When Rico and I met up with Carrie and Fred, I started by asking about their popular Put a Bird on It video, (laughs) which I noted even my grandparents have heard of, and they're dead.
1: Did you put a bird on their coffin? I went and did. <laughs> retro Retroactively? I did that
0: afterwards. It was so charming, that's, you guys. That's sweet. <laughs> but our question is, after doing this for three seasons, this is your fourth, do you have kind of an idea of what goes viral?
9: Oh, yes. you know, it's actually it, it's hard to predict. We couldn't have predicted put a bird on it. And even so far, the first episode that we had out, the thing that I keep seeing is the um, date fact checker. Mm -hmm. Uh Which which I wouldn't wouldn't have guessed, we just have no idea.
0: For those who haven't seen, this is a sketch in the new season where uh, a woman sends a guy over to her date's house to depose him about whether he's told the truth
2: during the date.
9: Can I help you? I'm a date fact checker. I'm here to corroborate some of the evidence you
6: presented at the dinner meeting.
9: Well, you said that your favorite show is Breaking Bad, when in reality you've never seen an episode and you're still catching up on True Blood. And?
0: It actually doesn't surprise me that that one was yeah. the breakout hit. Yeah. Well,
2: it's also a tidy concept. Yes. But it's it is tidy. true
0: that not all your sketches sure. are, you know, traditional set punchline comedy ideas.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we want there to be an accessibility, but I think what people's takeaway from it is we're not trying to prescribe. So I don't necessarily need somebody to laugh at it. Sometimes I Mm. just want someone to feel Anything, you know, or just to feel like to sort of feel that they're participating or that there is something relatable about it, even if it's a little melancholy or or sad or
2: awkward. So I I saw something the other day in New York magazine. Hipsters are dressing like normal people Mm -hmm. and a trending agency called this Normcore. Basically, the woman's like, I'm walking behind people on the street, and I can't tell if they're my parents' age, and they turn around and they're young and hip, and I'm thinking this is perfect Portlandian material. But also, are we? Do you ever fear peak trends? Yeah, if we're becoming normal, will there be anything for you to lampoon?
1: Well, one thing that I think helps us is that we started to focus on character.
0: You're not satirizing trends so much as a type of person. Yeah,
1: it's we're. I think we're just more interested in who, you know, what who is the kind of person that would you know, embrace Normcore. core, who, you know, and, and also, and it's not in like a derisive mocking way. It's kind of like what's lacking in their lives or what's, you know, what, what are they trying to say, you know, it, yeah. by doing this, by eating a certain way or dressing a certain way, you know, it's, it's a genuine interest.
0: Do you think there are a lot, there's a demographic outside the liberal arts demographic that you're screwing that's watching the show?
9: Oh, absolutely. I see them every day. I mean, we're we're here in New York right now, And I'm always amazed at the very, very New York y people who will say to me, Hey, Portlandia. (laughs) (laughs) And I grew up here, and that to me, I can't imagine how how they connect to it. Yeah. Because I'm talking like New Yorker New Yorkers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then the question then is, are you, there's like almost a word responsibility.
0: Like you may be defining that whole chunk of society for people that are not a part of it. That
2: was a public radio question. Yeah, (laughs) it really was.
1: Well, but the responsibility. I mean, I think. I don't know. I mean, I agree with Fred. We have kids and then we have grandparents that watch the show. Mm. And I in Salt Lake, uh, the Salt Lake City airport, there was a guy that lived like 40 miles out of the city in rural Utah that watched the show. So, And I feel like they're not watching it to be mean or to make fun of. I think it's almost more like anthropological for them where they're like, <laughs> "Who is? The, who are these people and how <laughs> can the? we get to know yeah. them better?
2: All right. Well, look, you guys have both been guests of honor on our show and we've asked you our two standard questions. So, we're going to do, do something a little bit different here. We usually ask you to tell us something we don't know, something you haven't talked about in interviews. We're going to ask each of you to do that about each other. Oh, so, yeah. So, Fred. Flip the script. Could you tell us something about Carrie that we don't know?
0: Make it juicy because she's going to. Well, I don't
9: know. <laughs> I don't know how much you would know this. Okay. But uh, one thing is she is very sensitive to cold. I mean, she has, like, this sense of... <laughs> coldness in a room and she'll (laughs) often enter a room and say she'll say burr (laughs) and and she'll ask this question does it have to be this cold (laughs) so you're
0: we're interviewing you you're in new york right now how are you possibly dealing with this carrie
1: well i would say burr why does it have to be this cold?
0: Yeah. And she but,
9: is wearing a scarf and a jacket and several layers. But it's, it's, but it's always directed at, at, at other people. It doesn't mean like, why, <laughs> why is nature, why did nature oh, yeah. make it so cold? It's more like, like why is this room, does this movie theater, does this, you know. Yeah. Why aren't you helping me? Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like, is there a reason this has to be this way? Yeah,
1: It's very true. I would rather be flaming hot. <laughs> flaming, flaming huh. hot. That's we awesome. had to get into a really cold pool on set oh. last year. My teeth were chattering. The
2: scene that happens in the hot tub? It was the hot yes. tub scene.
1: But it wasn't hot. No, it was freezing. <laughs> and it was evening.
9: Oh and my God. I, I'm with Why her didn't on they this make one. it hot?
1: Because they, tried. they thought They were. They tried. They had like <laughs>
9: some kind of a, a, a plastic blanket over it that sort of heats the top of it. And they're like, it'll be warm. It'll be warm. <laughs> and I, I have to say, I will agree with Carrie. It was ice, ice cold. You could see wow. it. If you look at it, you'll see our body language is we have to get this scene done quickly. So
2: maybe the steam coming off it is actually... The steam yeah. was
1: probably in post because yeah. there was yeah. no steam coming <laughs> off that. CGI. Yeah. Oh, my God. It probably was. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was.
9: They've oh. got yeah.
0: the money to put CGI smoke, but not Can to Can you actually, believe it? Not to have a heater. <laughs> That's not cool. All right, so vice versa. Okay. Carrie, what do we not know about Fred?
1: Fred looked, gave me a look like, what are you going to say? <laughs> Don't tell them...
0: No,
9: I don't
1: care. I'm not. I'm going to tell you. I I was going to say something about an allergy, but I'm going to say (laughs) this this thing that I I actually, I love many things about you, but I actually find this very clever and practical in a certain way, Mm. which is when Fred travels, instead of doing laundry, he will ship FedEx his dirty laundry home and go and buy fresh underwear. (laughs)
2: Whoa. But but you don't throw away your underwear. You sit home. Which to me I always think like
1: yeah, it does seem weird that you would you get there and you open up a box of (laughs) stinky underwear. But then you just do the laundry there.
0: I thought you were going to say that you were shipping it home to your mom, and then it was going to be, that was
9: the problem. That's
1: beautiful. That's sweet. Um,
9: Can you explain why? I'm a master at traveling. I really make sure that I always pack lightly, and it's just a little bit of carry-on luggage Mm -hmm. and minimal, minimal. And so clothing just sort of weighs it all down. So socks and everything else, when I'm done, I ship it all back. But
2: I don't understand. It probably costs just as much money to ship underwear across the country, FedEx, than to buy a new pair of underwear. So I'm I'm, I'm loaded. Oh, that's right. That's true. Fred
0: Armisen and Carrie Brownstein. The new season of their sketch comedy show, Portlandia, just launched on
2: cable channel IFC. And you have not heard the last of them on today's show. They'll join us later to answer listeners' etiquette questions. And with travel tips like Fred's, you can be certain (laughs) it'll be sound advice.
8: And now, time to eavesdrop.
0: Carrie Lynn is a journalist and author of four books of nonfiction. Her first novel came out just in time for Mardi Gras last week. It's called Madam, a novel of New Orleans, and we're about to overhear an excerpt. We should note the language is clean, but there are suggestive adult themes. Parents may find it inappropriate for kids.
8: Hi, my name is Carrie Lynn, and I co-authored a book called Madam, and it's based on the true story of Madam Josie Arlington. She was a very powerful madam in 1900's New Orleans. There was a legalized red light district then known as Storyville. She ran a very tight ship in her bordello. But in this scene, her piano player Ferdinand watches as she almost loses control. By the time Josie turned to face the crowded parlor, her full transformation, one she'd spent years perfecting, had occurred. Her impishness was gone. Her posture was Victorian straight, bosom thrust forward, shoulders pinned back, her expression hard, but sultry. She was no longer the down-on-her-luck girl Ferdinand had met way back when. She was now the legendary Madame Josie Arlington, a legend of her own making. The room swarmed around her, every man eager to be in close proximity. Josie launched into her little routine, batting her eyes, walking her fingers up a row of gemstone shirt studs, pinching a cheek. By design, she spoke sparingly. Words could take away from whatever daydream a man had come in with, and that was the last thing a madam wanted to do. She did her best to remember faces and names and trivia. As in, well, hello again to my handsome mister from Mississippi, whose favorite color is redheads. She also knew to do this parade early, before the alcohol had taken hold and loosened their tongues and inhibitions. Even still, there'd always be those who couldn't resist pinching her bustled behind or daringly grabbing at her. Josie had trained her girls to keep a sharp eye out for this type of misbehavior. The girls knew precisely when to swoop in and cause a distraction that would allow Josie to steal away. But now, as she scanned the parlor, she saw no one. No lace, no bustles, No feathered hats or hair bows. The men seemed to be closing in. Their bodies grazed hers. She could feel their hot breath. Just then the lamps sputtered and all at once fizzled out. A jolt of panic shot through Josie. And then she saw glowing lights dancing on the ceiling.
11: For she's a jolly good fellow. For she's a jolly good fellow. The crowd parted to
8: four girls precariously balancing an enormous layer cake. Covered in sugar roses. Josie's jaw tightened, her fists clenched. She gave a defiant stomp and bellowed louder, Stop! The girls exchanged fretful looks as the boisterous room was struck uncomfortably silent. She took a deep breath, allowing her fists to unclench. With a nervous little laugh, she said, There's been such a mistake! She forced a cool smile. It's certainly not my birthday. Might it be anyone's birthday tonight? A man pointed to his friend. It's his tomorrow. Perfect! Then this is your celebration. And at midnight, I'm sure a lucky lady can make it quite official. Ferdinand quickly started up for he's a jolly good fellow again. In a shuffle of kid leather boots, the girls awkwardly rotated the cake to face the patron, who was turning a deep red. The room confusedly resumed singing. Josie made her escape.
2: Writer Carrie Lynn, co-author of the new book, Madam, a novel of New Orleans. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Enrico, when it comes to food and the senses, we usually focus on taste Mm -hmm. and smell. And looks. Also, and looks, except in the case of celery root, which is (laughs) just super ugly. Yams, yeah, as well. Yams are pretty ugly too, but they have the nice orange. But anyway, we rarely think about what food sounds like. Enter Licistra. This is a food slash art project whereby sensors are inserted into ice cream cones so that with every lick, you trigger a musical tune. Finally! Yeah, we did it. Uh, So the project was created by food designer Emily Baltz and object designer Carla Diana. I invited them to our studio, and I asked Emily why they're so interested in food sounds.
10: So every time we eat, we make a sound. And that sound exists in two spaces. It exists inside of us, and then it also exists outside of us. And you, you know that classic example of, like, you're sitting in the movie theater with that, Darn oh, bag! Can't stand that sound. Oh my goodness! When they ah. crunch on the popcorn. <laughs> oh. Yeah, or you're in a meeting and someone decides to eat a carrot. Yeah,
2: what yeah. a great
6: idea! No. Yeah.
10: <laughs>
2: or in radio, we we in our f- we get in trouble sometimes because we always eat on on this segment, the main course. Oh. But the sound of mastication, it, even that word. Oh, you're
10: so, not what of so those so it's gross. Announcers. So why do we need
2: to amplify this? Or. <laughs>
10: It actually is. That's our immediate relationship to it is that it's gross. But actually, this is not true. You look at any sort of industrial food product. Chips are a great, great example of this. And they'll actually work on the sound of it. So Hmm. we'll manipulate the material to create a sound of freshness. There are many, many, many companies that go towards this where we actually realize that the sound of it obviously relates to the texture of it, but the sort of crisp, crunch, snap...
2: That's interesting.
10: ...communicates to us. But certainly, I mean, look, you don't
2: have to have an answer to the question of what to what end, but making food sing, although fun and and interesting in a gallery, and obviously I'm talking to you because it's kind of fascinating, but really, is there a practical application for this?
3: Well, sure. We had a lot of conversations about modern life and about how we don't actually stop to taste our food. And that this actually contributes to a lot of what we talk about with obesity and, and, mm-hmm. you know, how our uh, the pace of our life is just making us go so fast that we're not even appreciating the moments. And uh, so that was what we really thought about in considering how could we amplify that moment? How could we make people think about things holistically Hmm. and not just think, oh, I'm shoving my face now, I'm shoving my face now, but think, oh, I'm licking, oh, my tongue touching, oh, yeah, it's touching now, it's cold. And when you have the sound that accompanies it, it makes you really understand that moment.
2: Is that part of the reason you chose ice cream? I mean, of all the foods you could... Choose yeah. what you know, right? <laughs> well, because I it has a because yeah. people stop and take it as a treat, and they'll yeah. they be more contemplative. Normally, yeah.
3: well, there's a gastronomic reason, and there's
10: also a technical reason. Well, let's yeah. hear
2: the gastronomic <laughs> one first.
10: <laughs> <laughs> the gastronomic reason is that it's delicious. Yum! That's true. <laughs> um, the other reason is that, from a technical standpoint, this is a way to naturally encourage people to use a gesture. Mm-hmm. So the tests that we did before, sometimes we had to explain. Okay, please do this, right? Yeah. And it's not as intuitive. And ice cream is intuitive. You just lean over and you lick it.
2: All right. Well, let's. We've waited long enough. <laughs> yeah. We have we have a we have a quart of ice cream here, and we have these sensors. They're the shape of cones, like ice cream cones, but they're much bigger than that. They look like
10: megaphones. they look like
2: mini megaphones. And you put ice cream in them, and the sensors are, are get triggered by the motion of the ice cream. And that was an early lick sound. Oh, there we go. <laughs> and Carla's licking it, and it's making noise. I'm going to try it. Whoa. That is so cool. What determines the different sounds and frequencies?
10: So we have a four-part composition that we worked with a woman named Erin Dyer. Okay and so each sound is assigned each different track is assigned to a cone mm-hmm. so depending on the length of time that your tongue is on it it will arpeggio up and continue or oh, you can wow. start to play individual so
2: hence beats. hence the Stroke. because uh, you when you yeah. did this recently you had a handful of people doing different tones and exactly and music you know this seems like it runs counter kind of uh, the wholesome kind of Locavore.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, you might look look at it that way if you just think about electronics and think anything electronic is somehow unnatural. Mm-hmm. But what we're really doing Bob is Bob Dylan after
2: nineteen. <laughs> Bob Dylan after the Newport Festival. Ooh,
3: that is on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> but what we're really doing is we're playing with the natural properties of the ice cream by mm. you know riffing off of its conductivity.
10: But, uh, there, I think there's another level of it too. Is that though they're Yes. Food is of the earth and that is good for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not the whole story. Since the dawn of man, we started cooking. Mm -hmm. And cooking takes us one step away from that. So in doing that, the the transformation into cuisine, when something becomes cuisine, it also becomes creativity. Mm -hmm. And this is an abstract way to start thinking about it. But food is also entertainment. It does feed us, but it is also pleasure. Mm-hmm. It is also community. It is also happiness and delight. And, yeah. But
2: don't you think restaurants will be intolerable if people start making their food sound like things? <laughs> like, I can already barely hear what's going on. In
3: well, it's very possible you could also have directed sound. And imagine if there were three tables and they started becoming an orchestra together and you uh, actually had a reason to talk to other people. Yeah. And not chew really loudly.
0: <laughs> So, Brennan, I don't
2: know why. I always thought ice cream would sound like (laughs) ragtime. I think that's milkshakes, actually. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Ben & Jerry's, (laughs) of course, is more jam band. (laughs) (laughs) And Klondike bars are heavy metal. Exactly. That's just facts.
0: Uh, Folks, coming up, more sensory stimulation, courtesy of pop star Pharrell, and Carrie Brownstein and Fred Armisen return to answer your etiquette questions. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we place a call to pop star Pharrell. Plus, we speak with Mark Levinson, director of a new documentary about physics called Particle Fever which, trust me, is totally awesome. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson.
0: Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them are once again Carrie Brownstein and Fred Armisen, writers, stars, and producers of the sketch comedy show Portlandia, which just launched its fourth season on IFC. Carrie and Fred, welcome back. It's been like 15 whole minutes since we last spoke, and it was terrible for us. We missed you.
2: Are you guys
1: okay? We missed you, too. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having
2: us. We told our audience you were going to be here, and they have some questions for you. Uh, So let's begin. This question comes from Kay. Kay writes, I am engaged in planning a wedding. My future husband and I do not wish to have children there as neither of us. Wait, whoa. (laughs) There? At the wedding? They're not going to have kids at the wedding. They don't want guests to bring kids is what they mean. Oh, there we go. Oh,
1: no, this is a (laughs) good question.
2: My future husband and I do not wish to have children there as neither of us like them. Mm -hmm. We made our invitations clear, but a distant relative must have missed the no kids memo. She's bringing her sons with her. What should I do? Mm.
1: You know what? This is real advice. I would contact this relative by phone or email and reiterate her desire to not have kids there and to offer some kind of child sitting services during mm. uh-huh. the ceremony. That, that's what I would do. And I actually think that's good advice. No. That that's great it, advice. I, I think
2: that's good advice. But I see two etiquette questions in this one. First of all, is it okay to have people not bring their children to a it's wedding? It's okay to do anything you want
0: at your own wedding,
2: isn't
1: it? I Absolutely, it's your, your party. I think so too, because there's so many other things, and people make you fly to far flung places yeah. and ask <laughs> you, smoke. yeah, ask you to dress
2: a <laughs> yeah. certain way. All right, so there you go. Okay, Carrie will pay for the babysitter. What yeah. if you don't have the money to offer? Yeah, an that's the thing.
0: Enough? This is very. I mean, what we really should be talking about is the impoliteness of the person who did not respect the invitation.
1: There's that too, and I, I guess. If you wanted to take a more hardline, less generous approach, which I think is fine, because mm-hmm. her, you know, their, it's wishes, your special day, Kay. It's your special day. <laughs> you could just say we're glad they're making the trip with you, but as stated in, in the invitation, we're not having kids at the wedding. Maybe mm-hmm. that's the more hardline approach. And
2: you could have one of those things like they have on Ferris wheels. Like mm-hmm. if you're not this tall, you cannot come into <laughs> yeah. our wedding. I'm like, sorry, absolutely. You can hang out in the Prius. <laughs>
0: All right, here's something from Jordan from Greensboro, North Carolina. And Jordan writes, when my wife and I watch a movie, she, quote, multitasks on her phone, but still claims she is enjoying slash paying attention to the movie. Am I unreasonable for complaining?
9: Um. A little bit. I think that uh, mer- relationships are a compromise, and everyone enjoys movies in their own way. And actually, th- there are some people who can actually take in and enjoy a movie while they're doing other things. So I think yeah. th- I think that's okay. And even if it's a little annoying, it's it's yeah, at least you get to watch a movie with somebody. Yeah. I have to say this drives me insane me when too. people do this all the
0: time. It's like, and they say that they're. Multi- I mean, I believe that that's true, Fred. That there's some people that are like that. But in my experience, they're they're missing everything.
2: But why do they have to watch it with you? Like, why? Can't they have a more fractured... Well, why are we
9: watching the movie then? Because we're sitting next
2: to each other. Because you're
9: spending time together. No, she's she's on the phone. You want your day to go well, literally, at the end of that day. Mm -hmm. You don't want there to have been an issue with, like, you didn't watch the movie in the way that I do. Yeah, that's different. That's
1: passive-aggressive. I think there is a way, though, of stating what kind of shared couple experiences are important to you. And it it obviously just can't be everything. If, If this is one of his main activities they do as a couple that's very important to him, then I think he should say in advance, like, listen, Mm. I would love for us to just sit here and watch a movie. But if they do a bunch of things together and it's not that important, he should just let it go.
2: Yeah. But I also think Uh, he should reevaluate what is important quality time because you're sitting exactly. in front of a television not communicating even if you're both focused on the movie but she's is multitasking really? on
0: her phone she's like two levels divorced from the uh, time they're
9: sharing together you don't know how our brain works you don't know this that's person that's true maybe she's right. texting uh, him love notes that's or, or <laughs> trivia questions trivia on the movie
1: yeah trivia. or live tweeting it i think the onus <laughs> the onus is on him to let her know that it's important and if it's not that important
2: let it go actually i'm t- if jordan if if you really are focused <laughs> on the movie on the way that you want her then to how be do focused, you know? how do you know? <laughs> how do you know what she's doing over exactly. there? Exactly, you know? where is
9: that, yeah, where are his eyes?
1: They should watch the movie on her phone, <laughs> yes. I'm pointing at Carrie right now.
9: There That's we go. the middle way,
2: That's hey, silence. That's good, Yeah. all right, we solved that one, all right. This question comes from Michael from Tipton, Pennsylvania, and Michael writes, in my work I occasionally encounter actors and other celebrities, some of whom I recognize more than others, can you recommend how or if one should ask that potentially ego-damaging question, where might I have seen your work? P.S. This would not apply to Fred and Carrie since I'm a big fan of their show. Uh, well,
1: I, I don't think one should be any more nervous or deferential about Performer than anyone else. So if you really don't know but are curious, I, g- I guess just be honest. I mean, Fred loves when he gets mistaken for Rick Moranis, and uh,
9: <laughs> it really happened. Uh, really? In really? In Disneyland. In Disneyland, uh, a family from <laughs> India. The dad came up to me and and told me that I was great in Honey and Shrunk the Kids, <laughs>
1: <laughs> which would make Rick Moranis look so amazing now. Oh my he, God!
9: Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you were okay with that. You enjoyed that. I said thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, and sometimes people say Carrie Bradshaw, right? <laughs> which is the character from Sex and the City, mm-hmm. and uh, I just say, yeah, that's my name.
9: So there you go,
0: Michael. Just just go ahead and ask.
1: Go ahead and ask. Just be polite.
0: All right, Julia in South Pasadena, California, writes. You're driving on the highway and the super slow car you've been tailgating finally changes lanes is a stare-down merited or some other form of reproach. Wow,
1: that is a big pet peeve of mine. Which
2: one, which part? Yeah, she's
0: tailgating.
1: I know, being tailgated, but also having someone drive really slow Mm -hmm. in front of me. I don't think a glare is ever worth it. You think you might glare and then speed ahead, and then you never know, traffic patterns change, and all of a sudden you're just right up next to that person (laughs) again. I would just internalize that glare.
0: Although let's also talk about the fact that this car may be driving super slow because Julia's been tailgating the hell out of this person and they're mad.
1: to leave a certain car length.
0: It's the law. Yeah
9: it's the law we should have yeah, it's we, the law that's why we have it here. it's the law <laughs> this is yeah. why it's we brought law. Fred and Carrie
2: here to answer legal questions See <laughs> yeah, how many
9: times I can say it's the law <laughs>
2: alright now this is honestly our last question Any wait guys? I want to I want to oh. add something
9: yeah. I thought of something else that Carrie something about Carrie that is remarkable <laughs> I know this is okay. off topic earlier in the show for those who didn't hear Fred and
0: Carrie were telling us trivia about each other
9: just just edited in really, really quickly um, she knows all the girl groups from the early 60s like an encyclopedia yeah. Really? That, really, It is crazy. One
1: time Fred and I were in a small town in Washington State. We were driving back from a wedding. This is tying everything in. We were driving back nice. from a wedding where there were no kids. And we weren't tailgating anyone. <laughs> and, and there was some music playing, you know, just over the, the speakers in the restaurant. And I could name every song. And it was like those, that 50s doo-wop stuff. And I don't know how I retained that information, but somehow huh. I did.
9: Wow, what's the most obscure? I can't even remember the names. But (laughs) but names that if I told you, you'd be like, I don't know if that's a real group.
2: (laughs) Maybe they aren't real groups. Oh, no, no,
9: I I checked. Oh, you did. Okay. On your phone while you were listening to her. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Yeah, Yeah. so he was
2: really
1: distracted and I was upset.
2: There we go. There you go. It all comes full circle. (laughs) Brett Armisen and Carrie
0: Brownstein, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave.
1: Well, thanks for having us.
0: Thank you for having us.
2: Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein. The new season of their sketch comedy show, Portlandia, just got underway. And it's filled with characters who could maybe use some etiquette advice. Alas, they are not real.
0: Nope. But if you are, send us your politeness predicaments via dinnerpartydownload.org.
2: It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we get schooled in a dinner party-worthy topic Today, our subject is merely the origins of life itself. And our expert is physicist-turned-director Mark Levinson. His new documentary is called Particle Fever, and it's about the search for subatomic matter, specifically the Higgs boson, a.k.a. the God particle. This little clue to the origins of the universe was first theorized by Peter Higgs back in 1965, and it led to the creation of the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland, You know what, Mark, you do such a good job of clarifying complex topics in this documentary. Maybe you can explain what the collider is and how it works. Okay. Uh, So, uh, I mean, the Large Hadron Collider
11: basically collides particles. It's a 17-mile underground ring. Mm -hmm. It's underneath Switzerland and France. It's about 300 feet below the surface. You know, in this tunnel... Basically, they are circulating beams of proton in opposite directions. And so mm-hmm. you accelerate these beams of protons in opposite directions at near the speed of light. And then you crash them together at uh, four points. And at those four points are the experiments, the detectors, which is that's what we call the experiments. That's where you're looking at what yeah. uh, comes out of these collisions.
2: And tell me more about like the Higgs boson and why it's so important.
11: We understand at this point that the universe is basically made up of particles, Mm -hmm. and they have certain interactions, but at the beginning of the universe, the the, the theory is that they they didn't have mass. They would have just been like light. Nothing, there was no atom, nothing foreign, because everything was just flying all over. And what the Higgs mechanism does is it explains how just a fraction of a milli, milli, millisecond after the Big Bang, this so-called Higgs field turned on, and it allowed uh, electrons and certain other things to get mass. And once they had mass, then they could be trapped into atoms. Mm -hmm. And so you could start to get structure. You could get atoms, and then, Mm -hmm. of course, molecules, and then eventually galaxies and everything else. That theory essentially explains everything we see on
2: Earth. But we were missing this one central part of that theory. And so they built the Large Hadron Collider to Figure that out. And it took decades to build, involved thousands of scientists from all over the world. And you're there when it finally opens. So, you know, you have a story there. However, theoretical physics is a long game. How did you know that you're going to have an ending? Uh, You know, how did you know you were going to have a movie? Tell me a little bit about the process. I was always looking for,
11: you know, how this is going to be a dramatic story. We knew, you know, okay, the startup. I mean, as it turns out, I... Just barely got it organized to get over in time for the first uh, test, the first beam test, the first big m- yeah. uh, milestone in 2008. We didn't know if it would start up. Luckily, it did. But then, as you know, it turns out there was a huge explosion and there was a big accident just ten days after I started shooting. Of course, you know, I had to uh, hang my head with the physicist, you know, because it was very depressing for for them. Sure, But you were but <laughs> secretly as a filmmaker. But see, as a filmmaker, I was thinking, yes, nice. you know, <laughs> and uh, but, and then... You know, again, in classic screenwriting fashion, there ended up being other, like, you know, things that happened in sure. false leads and this and that. and It, and, and it became I, more complex. It and, became uh, more complex. But if I ch- actually scripted what happened, people would have thought I was just being, you know, yeah. I- I- really
2: including all sorts of artifice. So the trials and tribulations of the Hadron Collider are one source of tension in the movie. Another one is meeting these physicists who have spent their whole careers crafting theories which can be proven or disproven by one spin on this collider. And it's fascinating to think that one set of data could alter their entire careers. We wanted to focus on people whose lives really had something that was incredibly
11: at risk with the Large Hadron Collider. People like Savas Dimopoulos, who has been working in the field for 30 years, he has many theories, but it depends on seeing something at the Large Hadron Collider that is new. I mean, for the experimentalists, it's a little bit different. And experimentalists
2: are physicists who test theoretical physicists' theories.
11: They have been working on this, but they've been very actively building the machine, you know, for 20 years or something like that. But, you know, the stakes for them are also tremendous because... If you, I mean, for instance, you look at a young woman, she was a postdoc at the beginning of this film, Monica Dunford. She spends all of her life building a machine that doesn't find anything. Yeah. That's pretty frustrating. So
2: you ended the the movie with um, the Stanford physicist Savas Demopoulos saying, Why do humans do science? Why do they do art? The things that are least important for survival are the very things that make us human. Why did you end on that note? Well, look, for me, I had
11: made this transition myself from physics to art in a certain sense. And people always ask me, oh, how did you do that? It seems like this completely discontinuous thing. But, you know, I actually saw similarities in process. We are all trying to Make sense of the world around us. We we represent it in some sense, and we try to interpret it, and by representing it, try to understand
2: how it works and our place in it. Mark Levinson, director of the documentary Particle Fever, it's a really great film. Mm -hmm. It opens theatrically in select cities this week.
0: And speaking of science, we are gonna conclude today's show with a little bit more from an unexpected source, Namely, Grammy winning singer and producer Pharrell Williams. This week he released his new album, Girl, featuring the huge smash single Happy. If you've somehow not heard it or you missed him performing it on the Oscars, here's a clip. I'm a- Now, when I spoke to Pharrell by phone this week, I learned he sees that song in a very unusual way, literally. First, though, here's what he said about appearing on three number one singles in the last year.
12: Listen, even this interview and having questions like this, I'm I'm having to pinch myself like, is this real? Are they talking to me? Like, because I've always been the guy that's like been in the kitchen for, you know, for that.
0: Yeah, you produced big hits. You didn't perform them.
12: Yeah, like, you know, so I was sort of making the meal, you know? I've never really been, like, the host of the party. Hmm. And that's why it's just, like, crazy.
0: I can't even imagine. But look, something that caught our eye is you have synesthesia, which is a condition where, in your case, you can actually see sound, for instance, as colors. My question is, what does that song, Happy, look like to you?
12: Believe it or not, Happy's always been, like, yellow and red for me. <laughs>
0: it's weird. The, the yellow makes sense to me because it's sunshiny. But what's the red? Do you think
12: the yellow part is like the verses, and in the red, well, I could be wrong. It's not <laughs> red. It's more like orange. But then there's like a little pink. It's a little rainbowy because of the minor chords or whatever. Those minor chords sort of give me sort of like a more exotic set of colors when you hear that because I'm happy. You know that that part. Yeah. Those harmonies. Each one of those harmonies sort of has a color.
0: Oh, So they're like laying over top of each other and creating kind of right. a new, less uh, primary color.
12: Right. Whereas the verses are just very triangly and, 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 and yellow. And I know all of this sounds so crazy to what, <laughs> to, <laughs> to people who are probably listening. But, you know, trust me when I tell you this, it's not just me. There are so many musicians and so many like artists. Who see music in color?
0: I did look at a list of, of musicians that have synesthesia, and it's pretty impressive. Duke Ellington is on there, Billy Joel. You
12: know, or even Stevie Wonder, who they say is blind, but he's also a synesthete. Did you know that for every musical note, there is an equivalent of a color and a frequency? Really? Yes. You know, C is red.
0: How does how the color assign to the
12: note? The simplest way to explain it is that, like, the electromagnetic spectrum has everything from gamma rays to X rays and there's a small portion in there that we can see that's also equivalent mathematically to Hertz.
0: Oh like Hertz H E R T Z, like wave frequency. Yeah. And there's some sort of correspondence between light and sound frequencies?
12: Yeah. In fact the way that the astronomers search for the stars is basically and sounds they usually say that like, you know, most of the stars are emitting like D's and Cs and
0: A's. B notes and C notes and A notes. Yeah. That would blow my mind if it turned out that like every hit song that you ever had just happened to have exactly those notes in it. <laughs>
12: <laughs> would be like a specific star constellation. How rad would that be? It
0: would. And then you'd have like the celestial key to writing hit songs over and over and
12: over again. Yeah, but then I would, oh God, publish it. <laughs> you gotta go anywhere
2: <laughs> to
5: experience the outer space that
0: Pharrell Williams. His new solo album is called Girl. And folks, we tried to study up some more on some of the science he dropped on us there, and got lost in some very complicated concepts. If you're an astronomer who speaks non-science major, please do drop us a line.
2: Or just dance to his awesome song. That will work as Meanwhile, well. That's the very trippy dinner party download for this week, folks. Our associate producer is Jackson Musker. Our web assistant is Brittany Martin. Our interns are James Delahousie and Esther Mania. Peter Clownies, our executive producer. Next week
0: on the show, Wes Anderson talks about his new film, The Grand Budapest Hotel, and about 19th century stoves. Of course. Mm -hmm. Until then, bon appétit.